John 4, 19 through 24. Let's hear God's word. John 4, 19. <coughs> this is part of the critical part of the dialogue that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman about worship. So it relates well to our subject this morning, the Puritans on church and worship. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Lord God, as we consider in these moments the Puritan view on church and worship, we pray that it may shore up our own convictions and strengthen us to view true worship as the most important thing we do in our lives and that we would do so in spirit as well as in truth. So that out of our justification, as we just heard preached to us, we would live sanctified, godly, worshipful lives. Please help us and bless the presentation by Dr. Thomas this morning and my words of addition and make everything well and feed our souls, feed our minds and move our affections to worship Thee. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning you're going to hear uh, Dr. Derek Thomas, who's a very, uh, very close friend of mine, and he's a uh, senior pastor in the First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. He was a teacher at RTS in Jackson for a number of years. He's come to Puritan Reformed Seminary, uh, has taught several courses for us. He's a godly, humble dear brother, and uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this, uh, this presentation on the Puritans on church and worship, and then like normal, after he's done, I'll add a few uh, comments as well.
I'm here to speak about the Puritans and uh, church and worship. And one of the most important aspects of Puritanism and what they have left us uh, is a, a very pronounced and specific description of uh, the Lord's Day and of public and, and private and family uh, worship. Uh, when we think of the Puritans, we, we think, of course, of the Westminster Confession, uh, the assembly that met in 1643, and the confession uh, that was uh, first produced in 1645, and descriptive as it is of the heart of Puritan theology. And uh, the first thing I think that we glean is um, the Lord's Day. Uh, and the importance of the Lord's Day and the specific shape and contour uh, of the Lord's Day. Indeed, it has been said that the Puritans um, gave the uh, so-called English Sunday uh, as, as it once uh, was, uh, was um, lived out and, and uh, uh, much of that lies in Puritan thought about uh, the Lord's Day. Uh, they differed from continental uh, Protestants, um, seeing more of a mandate to keep uh, the Lord's Day, seeing the Lord's Day as the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Sabbath, and arguing uh, that although uh, there are um, typological aspects to the Sabbath in the Old Testament associated with Moses and, and the Levitical priesthood that are fulfilled or done away with in uh, Christ, the Sabbath itself, the fourth commandment, is rooted in the narrative of creation and the creation of man as man, man qua man, as we say, um, that the pattern of of six plus one, or in the new covenant, one plus six, uh, is the same. So there's a continuity as far as the fourth commandment is concerned into uh, the new covenant. There's also a background uh, in the 17th century uh, to do with the book of sports, first under James I and then uh, reintroduced uh, uh, under Charles the first, and, and, and this uh, laid out all the sports and activities that could be uh, done on the Lord's Day, and it irked the Puritans. And, and that probably gives some definitive shape to uh, the Sabbath in uh, chapter 20 of the Westminster um, Confession, and, and perhaps some contours that are slightly different, at least on paper different from the continental Sabbath, though, in my opinion, the practice of the Sabbath on the continent and the practice of the Sabbath in Puritan England was probably fairly identical, uh, d despite the nuances of, uh, of, of the words that are used uh, to describe um, the Lord's Day. Well, the Lord's Day, of course, consisted principally of worship, worship at home, uh, but also worship in church, worship, collective uh, worship. And uh, let, me, let me say a, a few things about uh, the Puritan view of worship. F first of all, 
uh, the regulative principle, something uh, that is espoused in chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession and, and reintroduced again in chapter 20 uh, of the Westminster Confession. And the necessity on the part of Puritans that there be a specific mandate of Scripture in order to prescribe what is essential and what could be laid upon someone's conscience for um, neglecting and, and offending. Um, more than just a, a, a proscription, there needs to be a prescription uh, of it. It's, it's not just that Scripture doesn't um, say anything about it, what we, what we sometimes refer to as the adiaphora, uh, uh, a Lutheran view, for example, um, but but more specifically, um, we must worship in accord with what the Bible specifically mandates, and that um, results in um, specific elements of worship and and elements that can be reasonably uh, summarized by saying that worship for the Puritans was was reading Scripture and praying scripture and singing scripture that that meant uh, psalms of course and 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 perhaps uh, songs that are based on scripture uh, and preaching scripture and seeing scripture in uh, the lord's supper um, augustine had referred to the lord's supper as a, a visible word and uh, the puritans uh, took that up if I were to describe Puritan worship, it, it was largely simple. Uh, there was um, some difference of opinion among Puritans. You can define Puritans in a narrow way, and you can define it in a much broader way. Um, but because of the regulative principle issue, many of the Puritans were deeply suspicious of prayer books, for example, or books of um, liturgy. Uh, John Owen was, was totally opposed to a fixed uh, liturgy uh, in uh, public uh, worship. And, and therefore, that gives to the worship service uh, a quality of simplicity, but also a quality that calls upon uh, those who are leading worship and those uh, who, who are worshiping um, to call upon the Holy Spirit. So th there's, a, there's a sense, I think, in Puritan worship that there is a dependence upon the, the moving uh, and, and filling of the Holy Spirit uh, to uh, engage our minds and, and wills and uh, affections in worship. Uh, the, the Puritans, at least the Westminster divines, produced not a um, a, a book of worship, not a not a not a liturgy, not a prayer book, um, but a directory, and the directory um, gives very uh, practical uh, guidelines as to what to do when you gather for worship. When you enter, you you should prepare. You should you should pray before the service begins. If you are detained and you are late, then you should join the worship where it is and not draw attention to yourself by sitting down and, 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 and praying, but just join the worship where it is. Um, very practical um, instruction about preaching, that 
it wasn't just the preacher who has to be engaged. The, the, the listener needs to be engaged in, in what the confession or the directory calls conscionable um, hearing. Uh, we are to apply the scriptures to ourselves as the preacher uh, is, is preaching. Uh, it, it would be described perhaps um, as solemn, um, as um, um, serious. Uh, there certainly wasn't any frivolity in Puritan worship. Uh, it wasn't meant to be uh, amusing or, 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 or funny, but serious in the sense that there was not just the external frame of worship, but the Puritans were deeply concerned about the internal aspects of worship, the engagement in particular of the mind and the will, and, and perhaps especially the affections, how the Word of God gets a hold of the very um, heart uh, perhaps one way to describe an emphasis in uh, Puritan worship was that they took seriously the words uh, of Jesus about the Pharisees, that they, they worshipped externally, but their hearts were far from him. And the, the Puritans, I think, took that seriously and desired, therefore, in worship that the heart, the very core uh, of our being be engaged uh, in uh, worship. Worship was therefore a, a spiritual exercise, and I'm using the word spiritual both with a small s but also with a capital S. It was an engagement of our spirits with the Holy Spirit. It was a, a communion. It was a fellowship uh, with Jesus Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit that draws us to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. So there was um, an, an upward uh, aspect to Puritan worship and not, and not just a downward uh, aspect. Puritan worshipers were encouraged to look up uh, and to engage uh, the totality uh, of their beings uh, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinitarian worship, uh, vitally important uh, to uh, the Puritans. Um, Puritan worship was um, uh, a, a deeply um, characterful, characterful uh, um, discipline uh, for uh, worshipers in the 17th century, N not just public worship on the Lord's Day, uh, but family worship at home. And, and the Puritans gave a great deal of emphasis to uh, a, a sort of family altar where um, typically the father would uh, read the scriptures and engage the whole family, um, the wife and children and, and others who might be there uh, in uh, scripture as a, as a daily uh, routine and pattern. Uh, the importance of catechizing uh, the children, something that we also see in uh, continental Europe, uh, transferring uh, itself now to uh, uh, Puritan England and, for that matter, to Scottish uh, John Knoxian Presbyterianism uh, in, in that sense. Worship 
is something we do in all of life, in whatever we do, uh, whether we eat or drink, we do to the glory of God. Uh, and the Puritans certainly believed that, that the whole of life was to be lived coram Deo uh, to God's glory. But there was a very specific emphasis given to public worship. There were rules that apply to all of life. There was a regulative principle for all of life. But that regulative principle behaved and was structured in a very definitive way when people gathered together in the name of the triune God to give him worship. Worship in spirit and in truth, in accord with the manner that God himself in Scripture has prescribed. Uh, a very, very important aspect then uh, of uh, the 17th century Puritans, uh, their emphasis on uh, public worship, particularly on the Lord's Day, that gave a structure to the Christian life um, as a whole. Have the lights back on, please. Thank you. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Thomas presented this subject very succinctly and, and well. And um, let me just stress a few things here and, and, and enlarge on a few things. One is the Puritans stressed that worship is the most important thing you could do. In this life. It's why you're here. God created you. To worship him. So. When you ask yourself. What's my most important calling in life? What's my greatest purpose in life? To the Puritan mind. The answer to both questions is the same. To worship God. Now the word worship. In Greek. Is pros kineo. And the word pros means toward. It's a compound word. And kineo means to kiss. So the idea is, as Derek Thomas uh, hinted at, is that the affections, the affections of the souls, not just your will, your mind, but also your affections, your whole being goes out in worship to God. So if you feel really drawn to, say, a person, a spouse, for example, and all your being goes out to that spouse and you say, I just love you with all my heart and mind and strength. You see, when you worship God, there's something like that, but multiplied times a thousand because God is the object of worship and your spouse is not. But you have this love burning within you in worship. You yearn for the glory of God. So, some years ago, I developed a, a definition of worship in Puritan thinking, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. It's, uh, it's fairly long because Puritans put a lot of thought into their concept of worship. But here it is. To worship God is, number one, to bow. In, in worshiping, we always bow, don't we? Before, 
before his majestic glory. And to bring to him, he's always the object of worship, that's number two, through Jesus Christ, always, always worship him through Christ, outside of Christ, he's just a consuming fire. That's number three. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is essential for true worship, otherwise you just end up focusing on your own emotions or your own feelings. The honor and praise that belong to Him alone, that's number five. That's the purpose of life, to glorify Him. And then number six, under the instruction, the truth, and the authority of His written Word, because we're always to worship Him, grounded in His Word. So you take these six elements together, and you have a basic definition of worship. To worship God is to bow before His majestic glory and bring to Him, through Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the honor and praise which belong to Him alone under the instruction, the truth, and the authority of His written Word. Now, the Puritans divided worship into three categories. Private worship, you must have your private worship time with the Lord. They actually divided that into two categories. Occasional worship, which you did spontaneously wherever you were, and deliberate worship, deliberate private worship, which we would call today your daily devotions, I suppose, or your quiet time with the Lord. And then family worship, which was, as we heard, was a really big deal to them. And there was always four things involved in family worship. Prayer, reading of Scripture, the Father instructing His children every day from the Scripture, and then singing, almost always singing a psalm. And the idea of family worship is that this is the foundation of what you aim for in your home, that your house becomes a little church, a nursery garden for the Lord, as the Puritans often said. (coughs) And then there is, of course, public worship. Now, Dr. Thomas hinted at this. He made a quick point of it and moved on, that public worship is the most supreme. The Puritans base this on a text in the Psalms, and David Clarkson has a whole sermon on it, that God prefers uh, the, the courts of his house over the dwelling tents of Jacob. And uh, what the Puritans gathered from that was that as sweet as family worship is, that the bigger goal in life is that the people of God would get together and that God had a special presence in public worship. So that your little nuclear family, as precious and as important as it is, is never the be-all or the end-all in life. But actually the family is meant, with God's blessing, to be folded into the greater family which would one day be the church triumphant in heaven. I want you to think about that a moment. This is a very important concept. Some people make their own little nuclear family the be-all and the end-all. And they don't realize that when they come up to the house of God, they are under the authority of the church leaders, and the house of God is to be a microcosm of that future heavenly glory, then in perfection, where the whole family lives forever. 
in the presence of Jesus Christ. So our greatest passion as parents ought to be that our children are born again and folded into the larger family of God, that family that will never die, that family that will live forever in union with Christ. And so that is the, is the, the big vision of the Puritan view of church and worship. And that's why in the Puritan mind, you see, um, you would never say to your spouse, well, I think I'd like three children. And she'd say, well, I think I'd like, say, five children. Okay, we'll compromise. We'll have four children. <laughs> and the Puritans would go, oh, no, no, no. The Lord opens a womb. You don't plan how many children you want. But when, you, when your spouse is sufficiently recuperated from the last child and she feels strong enough emotionally and physically and spiritually, you seek by God's grace to, to have another child. Very different from our way of thinking. When we think of children, even conservative Reformed churches, most people think of, well, what do we want? The Puritans thought of what does the Lord want? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And in the Puritan mind, what that meant was when you have children, you don't just have children, again, for your little nuclear family. You're not just nuclear family-centered. But when you have a child, and get this, because this is radical, when you have a child, you're having a child not just for you and your family, but you're having a child for the church of Jesus Christ on earth that the church might be built up. And even more, you're having a child for the commonwealth of England. So when's, when, is, when is the last time you sat down with your wife and said, Dear, shall we try to have another child so that we can populate United States of America with more believers? I mean, that is so foreign. We're so selfish. We're so narrow. Their vision is so much broader. This is the way they thought. If we could have one more child, that hopefully would be, in God's covenantal mercies, another believer, and that could help populate England with Christian influence and serve to the glory of God by serving England or New England. So, you begin to get this vision from the Puritans that worship is big. Worship is all-encompassing. Worship is the primary event of the life of the believer. That's why they called coming up to worship the market day of the soul. They would go one day a week to get their groceries. That was the market day of the body. And the market was only open one day a week. And one day a week, they would come up to the house of God and get their food for their soul. And then the goal was for a conscientious Puritan father that he would take those two sermons of that Lord's Day and he would weave it through all the family worships of the next week. And that food on the Lord's Day would supply them for the whole week. And they'd come up the next Sunday again and they'd get food for the week again. Of course, some of the churches had worship also on Wednesday night and uh, that would be an extra bonus, and they'd come up faithfully. Puritans loved, loved hearing sermons. In fact, sometimes the sermon was so much the center, so much the center of their worship service, they wouldn't say, are you going to church? They would never say, are you going to church? Because they, church is 
is you as a believer. It's, it's, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So they called the church the meeting house. Because in their mind, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the dwelling place of God. This is the New Testament church. Not, not this building, but the Holy Spirit indwelling you. So you go to the meeting house, and sometimes they would say this, are you going to sermon? Are you going to sermon? Because sermon was so much at the center of it, God is speaking to us through His Word. And that's why they were so jealous not to add anything to the worship that was not commanded in the New Testament because they didn't want to take time away from sermon, from God's message. Every minute you take away from the sermon in a worship service through some liturgy is one less minute that God has to speak to you through sermon. And so in the Puritan mind, there were three things in the New Testament that we are commanded to do in worship, and each of those is divided into two. The Puritans were Romistic in their uh, theology and sometimes philosophy as well. And so they often had points, and then they divide them into two points and divide that, those two points into two more points each. That's the way they thought. So they divided the worship service that way. Three things in worship, they said. Number one in worship is word. Number two is sacraments. Number three is prayer. Word is read, number one, and preached, number two. Sacraments, number one, is baptism. Number two is Lord's Supper. And prayer, they said it this way, Prayer is spoken, number one, and prayer is sung, number two. They saw the Psalms mostly as prayers. When you sing, you're really praying at the same time, audibly back to God. So that's the way they viewed it. And then the last thing I'd like to say is, um, in, in three or four quick thoughts, the Puritans made a great deal, and Dr. Thomas talked a bit about that as well, of the spirit of true worship. Remember he said, with a capital S as the work of the Holy Spirit, but also that spiritual worship is essential. So what they're saying there, and they're basing it on this text I read from John 4.24, is that there's four aspects to this spiritual worship that we need to remember. Number one is it's involved, spiritual worship is involved with heavenly reality. Heavenly reality. Worship is the most real thing you do in your life. Even though you can't see God, He's more real than the chairs you're sitting in. So the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, pours Himself out as a flood on dry ground in worship. Richard Sibbs called the church heaven upon earth, a microcosm of heaven that gives us a taste of heaven on earth earth. Therefore, the psalmist says, how amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord. And then second, worship in spirit is always centered on Christ. It's explicitly messianic because Jesus Christ is at the heart of all that we do in worship. Faith in Christ, as we heard also this morning, is essential. Christ is the altar that sanctifies our gift. By Him alone, we have access 
to God. John Calvin said, Let us learn to wash even our best prayers with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Puritans said, when you come into church service or worship service, you ought to be thinking already, meditating already as you sit in your pew about Christ. They were not in favor of people talking just before a worship service. This is sacred time. You warm your soul by meditating about Christ. And then you listen for Christ in the sermon. And you go out and live Christ after the sermon. Thomas Watson said, A believer with one hand receives Christ in worship, and with the other hand he gives himself up to Christ in worship. O Christian, part with all. Part with all for a part of this lovely Savior. And thirdly, that means then that worship in spirit, the essence of it is always inward and spiritual. It's not something you can see or you can lay your hand on, but it's uh, something in the depths of the soul that requires concentration and diligence and focus of mind uh, on the triune God. And then finally, spiritual worship, as the Puritans would say, is always plain and simple. It's unadorned, unencumbered with things that are over the head of the people. All things should be done according to the simple New Testament pattern. There's beauty in this plainness, in this simplicity as Christ is lifted up. And so we worship in spirit and truth, zealously giving God His rightful place. True worship is occupied with God Himself and with His glory. And so our goal is to be satisfied with Him, to please Him, to delight in Him, to love Him, to obey Him in true worship. The Puritans say, in true worship, we fall hopelessly in love with God. And ten minutes of true worship contains more joy than the world can offer us in ten years. Let's pray. Gracious God, bless this session. Help us to worship Thee in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.